0: Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Last weekend, we had a chance to be able to commission Pastor Ryan Brown and Sam Flaherty. Uh, Sam Flaherty, famous for his sweater vests. I'm kind of in mourning, so it's in memorial for Sam. That's, I'm just kind of helping process through my grief of his departure by wearing a sweater vest today. Um, we love and appreciate those gentlemen a great deal, and we're excited for where God has taken them in the future, and we're excited also about where, um, what God has in store for this church as well. Um, this is new to you. Um, and you may have missed last weekend, please go to our website. On the website, you'll see uh, on the homepage a congregational letter that outlines in some detail all of these transitions and who's going to be stepping into the various roles and what you can do to assist in that. And then also, of course, you can listen to the podcast as well from last weekend, or if you're curious about Dave and Al, that's from February as well. So I'm James. I'm a pastor here. I love my job, love my wife, love my church, and I love the opportunity to be able to preach. I get this weekend and next to be able to preach, and And so, we're gonna be looking at one big idea spread out over two weekends. The big idea is this Jesus is Lord. Put that on a t shirt. So, Jesus is Lord, and the implication is then, so what? And so, I'm gonna try to be answering the question. So what does it matter of Jesus is Lord in the area of, this weekend we'll focus on our money and possessions. Next weekend we'll focus on our time and our energy. But Jesus is Lord is the big umbrella idea under which money and possessions, time and energy will fall. So fair warning, we will be talking a great deal at some length regarding, your, uh, regarding the finances, both yours and ours. This oftentimes makes people uncomfortable. Let's go ahead and acknowledge that up front. Uh, we're going to do it anyway. Um, the other thing is that um, you may have some strong opinions, um, and so if you've got any negative comments, I will need you to email me, so write this down. My email address is spencershaber <laughs> at canbefoursquared.com. I'll be sure to get all of those. <laughs> Uh, No, my email is JWaltonCamB4Square.com. You're more than happy to connect and engage in dialogue with me on this. So that's what we're doing. If you've got your Bible, you're headed to Romans chapter 10. Romans is about three quarters of the way through your Bibles. Um, After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll hit Acts, and then you'll get to Romans, and you're looking for Romans chapter 10. As we get there in our text, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we acknowledge your lordship over our lives. Um, Help us to love you um, with the way that we live. Uh, We love you. We're grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 10, huge book. Um, I don't have time to set the entire context for you, but needless to say, we're gonna be kind of like jumping on midstream with this author's train of thought. When we pick it up in chapter 10, what he's trying to describe is how a person gets saved. And so if you read there in verse nine, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So I want you to notice what's happening here. There are two interrelated actions in play. First is the confession with the mouth. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. There's our phrase, right? Jesus is Lord. And then do what? Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. What will happen? You'll get saved. All right, so this is awesome, basic Christianity 101. I don't want you to get stuck somewhere and somebody like, bro, I need what you've got. Tell me how I can get saved. And you to go, go to church? No, get them saved right there on the spot. Point them to Romans 10 and say, what you need to do is confess that Jesus is now Lord, which is a concept I'll try to describe here in a moment, and then believe that God has raised him from the dead. So the two components in play are the lordship of Jesus Christ and the reality of Easter that the resurrection happened, okay? And then what, what's the case? Then we'll get saved. So this confession of Jesus as Lord for Paul, the author of this book, is the entry point into what we call the kingdom of God. There's a lot of things you can have faith in. In fact, Paul would go on to say in Ephesians, he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, right? We all know that. Okay, so what's behind that idea? By grace we're saved through faith. Faith in What? I mean, you can believe lots of great stuff. There's only one belief that will get you saved. It's the object of your faith, not the amount, but the object of your faith. That's the important thing. What's behind this passage is Paul's concept of what it means for Jesus to be Lord of all. So since this concept is so important, I want to take a moment to try to explain what that may have felt like, what, it may, what his original audience may have heard when he says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord. All right, um, so in the first century, when Paul was writing, there were certain things that everybody understood as a fact of life, namely that the Romans were in charge and that Caesar was in charge of Rome. All right, so briefly, if you can imagine the Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea there, you've got Italy and Rome sits right there in the middle. And under a fellow named Julius Caesar, the kingdom expanded a great deal. He went west into Spain, north into England. He was a fantastic general. And so from west from Spain, east to India, you've got this massive empire that ruled all. So Julius was so good at what he does, he was the first fellow, Caesar, Julius Caesar. Caesar was just a family name, but Julius took it and made it now a royal title. And so all the other emperors of Rome took the name of Caesar. And because he was so good at what he did, a lot of folks began to think, you know, he might actually be something of a god, which of course sat very fine with Julius's ego and he allowed that kind of thinking to continue. Well, unfortunately, he gets assassinated. And uh, there was a skirmish, a power struggle, a bit of a civil war. And it's his adopted, it's his nephew, kind of his adopted son, a fellow named Octavian, who takes the throne. And Octavian assumes the name of Augustus, right? Well, what does Augustus mean? It means worthy of honor, majestic. Now, you've got to have your, I mean, think about your own self-perception. If you're going to change your name to be majestic, He's going there. He thinks that he's a god. In fact, he went ahead and he officialized the fact that Julius Caesar was in fact divine. So what does that make Octavian? The son of God. So if you were to ask in the first century, anybody, well, who's the son of God? Who is Lord? The only politically correct answer that everybody knew was, well, Octavian. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, and the primal call of Christianity is not Caesar is Lord. It's Jesus is Lord. And so what are you doing there? Do you see how politically subversive that statement is? Do you see how countercultural that statement is? Do you see how much it flies in the face of the dominant worldview that statement is? You see, when Jesus tells his people, or when, when Paul says, you must declare Jesus to be Lord... He's not simply saying, I want you to accept Jesus into your heart as though it's some sort of primarily an emotional condition. He's saying, I want you to change camps, I want you to shift your allegiance. Prior, you were a Roman citizen. You were a slave of the empire. You bowed your knee to the throne that Octavian sat on. Now I want you to bow your knee to the throne that Christ sits on. So Jesus becomes the object of our whole life allegiance. So what does that mean? The implication is that Christianity now is quite a bit different than the Caesars, right? Right? Octavian established his empire through fear and the sword. Jesus establishes his kingdom through self sacrifice and unconditional love. Caesar motivates his clients through fear and judgment, and Jesus motivates his disciples through mission. So we are to begin to imbibe and take into ourselves the ethic of the kingdom of God, which is founded upon God's righteousness and his justice and his compassion and his care for the sick and the poor and the least of these. And he says, to them you ought to go, all of you. See, so Christianity isn't simply moralism, as though you come to Christ and and, and you're you're judged on your behavior. Well, if you do good, God likes you, and if you don't, then God doesn't like you. (laughs) No, that's legalism. We have grace which doesn't give us license to sin, but what it does is it gives us the reality that now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our record of behavior. He sees Christ's record of behavior, the righteousness that came to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. We now inherit the righteousness of Christ. We are saints in the eyes of God and now motivated by love back to the Father. What? We conduct the affairs of our lives in a way that honors him. So no, grace is not a license to sin. Yes, God still judges sin. Then absolutely. But the motivation for us to do good is not to gain the approval of the Father, it's having received it through what Jesus has done, we now behave in such a way that reflects well back upon the one true Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see that very important difference? We operate from the unconditional love of Christ, not for it. So Christianity is not just moralism, although living a moral life is vital to being a Christian. Neither is Christianity activism, as though doing good on behalf of others somehow Races our own personal sins and the balances are weighed and our good outweighs the bad and we go to heaven, not hell. Again, not the way that Christianity works. We have one object of our faith. His name is Jesus. His account has been applied to ours and we're now saved through him. So yes, we are activists for the sake of the poor, the disenfranchised, and those against whom injustice is happening. But activism isn't at the heart of Christianity. Allegiance is. It is the condition of every man and woman's heart to proclaim what? Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord of your life, this has certain implications, doesn't it? Right? It's not simply that I can say that I'm a Christian and go ahead and do one other thing. If you say you're a Christian, what you're saying is that I'm submitting to a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. His priorities become mine. His objectives and goals become mine. His resources I get to steward. It's not mine and I get a little slice of the pie to God. No, God owns everything as creator and king, and he's given to each of us responsibility within our particular sphere, and he's going to call us into account for how we behave there So what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to honor Jesus as Lord. You can see Jesus himself, he got a little frustrated. I think this is Luke chapter 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, comma, and not do what I say? Do you see the incongruity there? If you're going to call Jesus Lord, then certain behavioral conditions necessarily fall out of that. Again, we don't prove the lordship of Christ in our life through our behavior. It's an allegiance. But our behavior has a huge significance for how we do this because what we're looking at here is a way that we are now, we're following a different narrative. What's the script that most of us like were given as kids, right? Be good, do good, study hard, go to college, get a degree, get a job, Get a spouse, get a wife, get some kids, get a couple of cars, get some, you know, four weeks of vacation time a year, and then retire by the age of 60. We get a lot, right? Does that sound pretty familiar, right? This is kind of the script that a lot of us follow. So that what? It's all leading to what? Hopefully you've got enough gas left in the tank and money in the bank to expire your final years golfing and searching for treasures on the beach. But basically you're just, you know, It's retirement, it's it's, it's the thing we're all going for, right? And, And Jesus would come into our lives and he would try to shine this really bright light called the kingdom of God into our perception and say there's so much more out there that you could be living for. So I'm not against 40 acres and an SUV. I'm not against the American dream. I'm not against like getting more stuff. But what I'm against is thinking that that's the end all be all of life. As though Jesus came down from heaven to die on a cross. So that we could sit pretty on a Roth IRA and retire without a whole lot of stress. There has to be more than that. So when we begin to accept this new version of history, where is all of this going? What is the end to which God has created the world? How can we participate in the mission of God to do what? I would say to bring all things in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was one of the first Christian hymns. And Paul quotes it for us in Philippians chapter 2. He says, I want you to have the same mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Watch. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay, stay right here. Watch the trajectory. Where do we start? Jesus is what? God. Boom. That's about as high as you can get. All right? And what? what? He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he embraced an ethic of self-sacrificial love. And he did what? He emptied himself. And he noticed he didn't come to earth in the form of a king. He wasn't a part of the power structure. He wasn't a guy that had a lot of clout. He was a baby in Nazareth, which was nowhere. And from that position, what? Not only did he become a servant, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. God died on a cross. Who gets crucified? Criminals, enemies of the state, traitors, the lowest of the low. Do you see how far Christ stooped down from God to man, from man to servant, from servant to criminal, from criminal to dead? And then watch what happens. From that place, remember Calvary? Calvary is the center point of history. The climax of history has happened. It was Easter, that first Good Friday, right? When Jesus died on the cross. Now, the next thing, therefore... In light of all of that, notice the big trajectory here. Boom, death. And then from death, what? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow. That's allegiance in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess what? Jesus is Lord. There it is again. Do you see the direction that all of history is headed? It's here. It's the worldwide, universal, cosmic redemption of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christianity is far bigger than just doing good. Christianity is God's plan in which he will, through the church, expand the kingdom of God so that Christ is named, Christ is bowed down to, and Christ is glorified because it is to him that all of history is headed. Okay? Okay? So, our participation in this means something. It means a great deal. So I want you to know that you're part of a bigger story that's far greater than just retirement. We're on mission, all of us, at every stage and every age in life, we can contribute here. So, the proclamation that Jesus is Lord is to gladly, wholeheartedly submit yourself to the allegiance of a new kind of king, to the exclusion of all others. Notice that in the first century, who was the Caesar? It was Octavian. It was Augustus. It was Nero. It was all of those guys. And they demanded wholehearted allegiance. Well, who's the 21st century Caesar today? It's money. It's money. And Jesus, he caught on to this. And he would say something in Matthew chapter 6. He says that no man can serve two masters, right? You know this. Anybody ever had to try to have two bosses? It's hard. Because what? Either you will love the one and despise the other or you cling to one and be devoted to the other. So you what? You cannot serve God and money. All right. Now he didn't say you cannot be a Christian and rich. That's not what this verse is saying. God is not saying that money is bad. He say, money is neutral. Let's get that clear, okay? Money is just a thing. It's an object like anything else. It's the heart inclination that you have towards it that defines where, where it is on the morality scale. It's not money's root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. What God in the New Testament is so very clear about is especially for those who are rich above and beyond their peers is that they have a special danger of money stealing their heart, their allegiance, and affection away from Jesus so that now we begin to live for the buck as a to the king. And Jesus is very clear. It simply cannot be done. So you have to make a choice. So it's not whether or not you have money. That's not the issue at all. It's how you view that money and how you use that money that makes all the difference in the world. So, question. How does this church use its money? I'm going to transition now to kind of give you guys a bit of a family update. Um, So if you're new here, welcome. You're going to get to see kind of behind the curtain a little bit. Um, We're doing this, just heads up. Um, Ron and I were sitting down, we're collaborating on how do we create, here's, here's my goal, is that I want you guys to be able to be fully informed, fully invested, and trust what happens here in this church from a financial point of view. So rather than coming up every now and again to say, oh, hey, guys, uh, bummer. Turns out we don't have enough money. Would you please give more? That's kind of lame for everybody. Um, What we are decided to do is on a regular basis, we're going to be proactive. And we're just going to give you guys kind of quarterly updates for how the last three or four months have gone in terms of our income and expense. And and more importantly, what are the goals that are still ahead of us, how we're doing and getting to those goals, and how how are lives being changed? So that's what I want to show you. First thing I want to show you is what we call an income and expense report. This is just for the last quarter, 90 days between February and April. You can see that j- total contributions, that's, the, that's the, what gets put in those offering baskets as they go by, that's over $400,000 or uh, $33,000 a weekend. And that's, you see there, a 7% bump over the same time period from a year ago, which is really a good deal. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, You can see there that our expenses break down into kind of five major categories. First is our tithe. So 10 cents on every dollar that we get in is automatically redirected to our four-square denomination, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Also, our mortgage payment. Our mortgage payment is relatively low um, for us, which we're very thankful for, as well as the facility. Facility, that's just... that's the light bulbs that's the utility bills that's the property insurance that's the network that's all it takes to keep you know seven buildings and seven acres and a whole bunch of people all connected Um, and then the ministry expenses this is the budgeted ministry expenses this is the stuff that we do with our next gen department with our kids this is the stuff that we do to be able to fund kind of local in-house ministry and then of course you see our personnel budget so income minus expenses we cleared 20 grand this last quarter so that's really positive so thank you that's neat don't clap yet because there's more good news coming I'm not nearly excited about this as I am to show you a couple other things here in just a second but first of all please know there's not just like 20 grand sitting around somewhere we've got a plan for that money too and I'll tell you about that in a second here's this other thing so this is now a separate chart um, that so we've got like general fund giving that you just saw and then this is what we call designated giving or flow through giving for various. This isn't comprehensive, but this is just a few things that we've done. So you can designate your tithe or your gift towards, say, general missions, and that goes into that fund. You've seen almost $2,000 there. Um, Sean and Vita Mason in Albania, our pastors there, doing a fantastic job. So people have been able to support them. Um, Wayne and Judy Stanley are heading down to Mexico here this summer, so they're taking in funds as well. Um, Jack and Linda Gustafson do uh, leadership training and Pastoral resourcing down in brazil um he's fantastic so you see that arlene tatum is headed off to rwanda to preach the gospels in prisons in rwanda here in the next couple of weeks she'll be overseas for a month so you've seen a significant amount of money come in there as well as oh check this out our kindergarten class right the little six year olds, is that how old the kindergartner is? Roughly, okay. Um, they got together, they they pulled $62 together for Arlene to go to Rwanda with, which is like our kindergartners, which is fantastic. Those kids are loaded. Um, <laughs> I- I didn't have money till I was like 14. I don't know. Um, Rwanda Bibles. So we not only want to go and preach the gospel, we want to give discipleship material and places for people to be able to read the Bibles. And so we're going to get a whole bunch of Bibles printed in Rwandan. Um, benevolence. This is really neat. Um, you need to know that this church receives um, what we call a benevolence request. It's someone who has encountered a very difficult season in their life, and they reach out to us to say, can you help? And you need to know that not everybody with a sad story comes into our office. We do not give cash to anyone what we will do is we'll intersect their life and we'll ask how can we systemically help you so that we're not here again in two weeks or six weeks. And what we'll do is we'll pay their creditor or their utility bill or something like that. And so like this week, we had a chance to be able to um, pay the the utility company on Friday because Monday her power is getting shut off. And a couple other people, we were able to get them stayed in their houses so that they have a little bit more time to be able to get the work that they need. So I encourage you, we're having developing a really neat partnership with the Canby Center, Tim Lesher's organization downtown next to the high school. They're doing fantastic work, and we're very happy to partner with him. And so that's what a lot of our benevolence goes through. And then the lobby cafe, you guys knew that just by getting drinks here in the lobby... Everything above and beyond the cost of operating that gets redirected into the mission field. In the last quarter, we had $2,000 get redirected for local and global missions. So guys, in the last 90 days, 45 grand above and beyond all that other giving gets directly funneled back into the mission field to be able to expand the kingdom of God. That is really cool stuff, okay? Um I also want to encourage you that it seems really sexy to be able to support that. Like, man, I'm, I'm Bibles for Rwanda. Like, I know I'm going to be able to get, like, if I give a 1000 bucks, then I know how many Bibles that will get into the hands of Rwandans. That's awesome. Give, absolutely. Um, but all of those projects are kind of like the hands at the end of the, the torso. The core of this is the general fund. That's your non-designated giving. And so I want to encourage you, yes, continue to give generously to those areas, but also continue to not designate your money so that we have the liberty to be able to kind of keep running the organization as well that supports all of those funds, if that makes sense. All right, um, where does our money come from? Three major sources. You can see it here. The vast majority comes in checks, and then, of course, people give cash. And then also people begin to give online. You can give online with a debit or credit card to our church. You can set up a recurring contribution. May I encourage you, as we enter the summertime, um, most of you give when you come to church. And that's awesome. Thanks. Your participation in church is needed even when you're not here. Let me. Does that make sense? It's not as though you're coming to church and you're paying for religious services. You're contributing to an organization that expands the kingdom of God, that's the body of Christ, to do good work. And so I encourage you um, to set up a reoccurring contribution, you can either do it through your bank, through bill pay, or you can do it with a credit or debit card, and that helps us stay consistent throughout, especially the lean months of summer. And you can also see, um, where does our money go? You saw it in a table, now you can see it on a graph. You see, and we'll come back to this in a second, but the vast majority goes to our personnel accounts. So this is, again, over the last, and then you can see the rest of those categories there. I'm going to come back to this, so hold that thought. But what you need to know is that this money is changing lives. The people are getting reached. On the average, over the last 90 days, we've seen every weekend almost 1,200 people come here to be able to hear the gospel, to worship God together. Our kids are getting the, are hearing about Jesus. Our young people are getting opportunities to serve. We're seeing a lot of people be able to come and worship God together. That's awesome, right? You saw the big spike there, of course, over April. When we give you this number again, we usually see a decrease over the summer months, of course, as people go on vacation, which is great, because honestly, you don't need to come to church 52 weeks out of the year. I don't, so there you go. Be free, take your vacations, enjoy, love Jesus and creation. But here's the thing I really get excited about. Over the last 90 days, we've seen 52 people give their life to Christ for the first time and another 22 be water baptized here at this church, okay? (laughs) I get to feel that deeply because I'm here every day, but I want you guys to be able to know that you're part of that as well. And as you continue to show up and contribute and give to that, this becomes part of our legacy. This becomes us investing for eternity. We are, none of us individually can do what we collectively are doing. So I encourage you continue to stay there. Now I'm going to do something we maybe haven't done before. I want to show you again. Remember, trust is a big thing for me. I want you to know that we are transparent and we've got nothing to hide. I want you to know how we value stewardship as a core principle in this church body as well. So let's talk a little bit about what happens to this money. Okay? This, is uh, in, in accounting circles, it's called internal controls. So we know that most of the income comes through folks who are just going to be giving here. So checks and cash get put into the baskets. The baskets that get, then get combined and they're counted by two ushers not related by blood or marriage. And what they do is they independently verify the amount of cash that's represented there and then the second person signs off on it. So we've got two signatures of people who said, this is how much is here. That money's then put in a secure location during the week. We have two other staffers not connected in any way to the first two ushers who then go through and they verify the counts again in the presence of two witnesses so nobody's siphoning money especially the cash. Then Every contribution is given a contribution number and recorded permanently in our bookkeeping software. So that's why you get a giving statement at the end of the year. You can ask for one at any time. We keep current records on all of that, and it's kept in our bookkeeping system. There is no delete button in our bookkeeping system, so nobody can go in and say, oh, Okay, that, that means a lot, actually. So oftentimes when you work with Quicken, you're like, ah, eh, d- delete, we can't do that, all right? That money then gets, uh, what, oh, the, all the checks get copied so that we have physical record of your contribution. We keep those for seven years in case there's ever a question, or we need to go back and double check anything. And then finally, the money gets deposited into the bank. So you'll notice that throughout that entire process, it's multiply looked at and verified through independent sources. At minimum of four people are looking at that money to verify that what came through is actually what's getting into the bank because the bank balance has to match the contribution balance. Does that make sense, right? So there's the check and balance and all of that. How does money get spent, This is a very important question. So if you're a ministry leader here and you need to spend money for whatever it is that's in your budget, you'll come up and you'll have a question. Can I spend this money? And you'll submit a check request and you'll give it to your supervisor, generally a pastor, who will then approve or not approve the expenditure based on whether or not it fits according to the budget and the priorities and whether or not we've got the money in the account. Finally, all of those get compiled and they get put on my desk so I see all of those and sign off on those. I then give those stack of check requests to our bookkeeper who then cuts the checks, who then gives them back to me and one other pastor. So we've got two signers for every check. We're not handing out cash. There's a paper trail for everything. Okay? Then those checks are given. And then at the end of the month, we have an independent bookkeeper come in and reconcile our bank statement against our general ledger. So that means that nobody can go online and electronically defraud the church because it's going to be discovered by a person not connected to anybody in the rest of that system to able to see that. And then finally, at the end of the year, we have a CPA do a review of all of our financial statements. So notice the person requesting the check is different than the person approving the check is different than the person writing the check is different than the person cutting the check is different than the person who's reconciling the bank balance is different than the person reviewing the financial statements. This is called segregation of duties or responsibilities. And in the financial world, it's very important. This helps prevent fraud. Because here's, what, here's the big idea. That's cool, right? Thank God for Dave Kelly. He put that into place. Where that comes down to pastorally is that we recognize that many of you give sacrificially. Thank you. We want to honor that in the way, just in our internal controls and our processes so that you know that when you give, that money is going to get to its intended destination and it will do well for the kingdom of God. All right? So, what we don't have is a whole bunch of pastors sitting around desks like this guy who's just like rolling in it, okay? This is not what we do. I know we're a large church. I know that it seems like we're dealing with a lot of money, but all of that, we've got tight controls on this. I want to revisit a graph I brought up earlier. It's this pie chart that shows us um, where we're at now in terms of our spending. Obviously, the big piece there is the personnel. We love our folks, but honestly, it just wasn't sustainable. And what happened was is that in this, in this arrangement, the, our ability to invest in mission gets suffocated. Because if you've got almost 70 cents of every dollar going out the door just to keep your people here, then you can't do a whole lot in terms of your projects and the other things that can do tangible good there as well. And so um, obviously we've seen a lot of transitions with Dave and Al and Ryan and Sam and several other staffers as well. And so it's the bittersweet, it's the bittersweet moment. I love those guys. Each one of those guys have made a tremendous difference in my life and I'm very sad to see them go. I'm excited for what God has for them. Um, it's exciting to know that they're able to invest other places in the kingdom of God and I love that. But for us here as a church locally, what we're, what we're on track to do, I want to kind of paint a picture for you that come the start of the new fiscal year, which is going to be September, what our new budget may look like. The first thing that you need to see there is that personnel budget gets trimmed back to 50%. That's, we're on track to do that. Okay, so we're we're dead set to be able to meet that objective and that goal, and we've got the spreadsheets to prove it. The thing that you also see there that stays the same is the tithe. So ten percent of every dollar that comes in goes to our Foursquare Foundation on an annual basis. It's kind of a lot of money. It's like one hundred and seventy grand. So what are they doing with that money? That's a good question. Um, they are reinvesting that money into local church planting. Um, in leadership development and funding ministry happening at the local church level, okay? Right now, Ron is at that Foursquare convention he mentioned. What's happening at that convention is a kind of a redefining of how Foursquare is going to continue to practice, and especially what's going to happen with that tithe. By the end of the year, they're setting a goal to say 70% of that church tithe gets directly reinvested into the field where it came from, and within, I think, five to ten years, they're saying, we want to cut our central administration costs to zero so that 100% of the church tithe is able to get reinvested for church planting in the four square districts where it's come from. So they're getting on their game as well. Our mortgage, right now our mortgage is really, really favorable. We've got a low interest rate, and we want to take advantage of that um, because what we want to look at our indebtedness and say we don't want to try to pass that on to generations to come. So what this represents is, again, this is all just kind of, we're still spitballing here, but what we've done is we've taken the principal balance of what we pay in our principal each month in our mortgage and doubled it, and you can see there that the mortgage is still only 11% of the general fund. Facilities stay the same. And then here's the living sideways piece that I get really excited about. What if we were able to carve out a huge chunk in our budget to say each month we're dedicated to giving a percentage of our budget towards mission both locally, internationally, and for church planting? What that means is that that 11% in real dollars, again, all of this is predicated upon you guys, Their consistent, strong giving. But if those numbers stay consistent, that 11% represents about $15,000 a month. $15,000 a month above and beyond everything else. That's in addition to all these other stuff. That's now, that's a, that's, this is what we didn't have before invested into changing lives in tangible ways, locally, internationally, and then funding churches to be able to start in places where the gospel is not proclaimed so that this whole thing can start all over again. Because what? Because Jesus is Lord. So this is what we're after. Now, smarter minds than mine are going to take a look at this. Um, so our council is going to be, continue to meet over the summer. And we hope to come back to you at the start of the fiscal year to say, here's what we feel is right to the Holy Spirit and to us. Here's what our budget is going to be. And here's what we hope to be able to achieve with this money this next year. We want you guys to know that there's a direct connection to your generosity and the kingdom of God moving forward through New Life Foursquare Church. Last part is this. Whenever we talk about money, I know it gets awkward because you saw it. That salary portion that pays pays me comes from you guys. So it always feels like a conflict of interest whenever the pastor comes up and encourages giving. Well, let me tell you, please let me know. It's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you. I want you to be free of serving the false God of consumerism and money and greed. It's a sin and we need to repent. We're not here in order to get rich, get comfy, and and die happy. We're here to participate in the kingdom of God and joyfully, sacrificially give unto that cause so that we can represent with our money that Jesus is Lord. But I also recognize that for many of you, the call to increase your giving is kind of a bittersweet one because you want to, but you simply cannot. Most Americans are deeply indebted. And so how are you supposed to look at the $60,000 in student loans and maybe another 60 in consumer debt that you've got and say, and you want me to take a piece of that and give it to the church? I simply can't. The number one cause for bankruptcy in the U.S. right now, medical bills. If you're already living week to week, paycheck to paycheck, a trip to the ER, a baby, a broken arm, life happens and then what? then you're set back in a way that you cannot anticipate, that you didn't have savings for. Americans save, on the average, 0% of their income. So then what? Long story short, two years ago, my wife was in the hospital with kids, with twins. She had been there for six weeks because there was a complication in the pregnancy. She was in the hospital six weeks, and then the twins come, they come really early. So I've got one child in NICU, neonatal intensive care, for eight weeks and another child in there for 12 weeks. When all was said and done, I get bills that say that your medical expenses have exceeded $1 million. Okay, at the time I'm 28, we're a single income family, that's game over. Like done, like I don't, how do I, how do you come back from that? I'm standing here today as a debt-free man. I got a mortgage, but that's it. Because I happen to work for a wonderful organization that has health benefit, and my wife had the good foresight to sign us up for a supplementary, supplementary insurance, AFLAC, that paid us cash for every day our kids were in the hospital. So the tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills that landed on my doorstep, we were able to pay then and there. Because that's not for everybody, and I recognize that right up front, and I'm sorry if you're in that situation. Here's what I want to offer. Um, regardless if you got where you're at financially because of greed and consumerism, of which you need to repent, or you got there because life happened, if you're up Poop Creek and you don't know what to do and you've got no resources and you're just, it's, it's like, you know this, right? Money is the reason your marriage is falling apart. Money is the reason you can't sleep. We want to provide a simple resource for you. It may not fix your problems, but we want to be able to put you in contact with a fellow named Chuck. He's a wonderful guy. He's retired, and he's dedicating a day a week to be able to meet with anybody here who says, I need help to put together a budget to find sanity in my finances so that I can get out of debt and begin to live a generous life, free of charge. Call the church office, schedule an appointment. We'd love to meet with you. Do you hear that? free of charge so there's hope we care about you we care about the way that you handle your money because the money is a way that you reflect whether or not Jesus is Lord of your life so regardless of whether you're deep in debt or you're rolling in it please acknowledge honor and glorify Jesus as being Lord with your money and your possessions amen All right, let's invite our worship team and our care teams to come forward. Jesus, you are Lord of all. And until the day that the whole heaven and earth bow their knee in front of you, God, we willingly choose to do so today, right now, and we do it also with our pocketbooks and our stuff because we want you to be king. So Jesus, help your priorities to become ours. Give us generous, cheerful, sacrificially giving hearts. Give us opportunities to be able to invest in the kingdom of God and help us to say yes when those opportunities come. We love you. I pray for my friends, especially for whom money is just hard. Lord, would you give them grace and would you give them a plan to get from where they are to where you want them to be. In your name we pray. Amen.